Senator Kennedy again says he is not available. Ford administration postpones the sale of missile batteries to Jordan. Big Mac talks continue. A Senate committee has added a measure giving pay increases to top federal officials to a House-approved bill. Space agency officials say an astronaut failure to throw two switches resulted in poisonous gas streaming into the Apollo spacecraft during re-entry last week. And that, friends, is the 9 o'clock edition of the news. This is John Scott. Next news as it happens, next scheduled news tonight at 11 o'clock as WOR brings you news as it happens. Stay tuned now for Gene Shepard coming up next over WOR, New York. I suppose I should do this. I, I've thought about this. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, we get this kind of news here in the big city, but uh, uh, they reported this in the Staten Island Advance, which is a Staten Island newspaper. For those of you who are students of New York Cityana, uh, yeah, that's a whole study, you know, like criminologists or, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, Chinaologists or, or, you know, the people that, that uh, like... Uh, well, there's a, there's a whole school now of study that is based on uh, uh, studying Jackie Onassis. I mean, they, they, you know, there's a whole school of literature on this. And uh, Gene Dixon somehow is closely connected with it. I can't figure out why. <laughs> but, you know, uh, you, you mysterious headlines uh, you keep seeing uh, on these. Uh, on what, I, what I like to determine, well, I actually call this myself when you know, I'm standing in line at sometimes. You have little phrases that you use yourself when you're talking about things, you know, like, uh, 
It's not one of them cockamamie things. You know, it's, you, you'll say things like, that's another one of them stupid yahoos. Phrases that you use over and over again. What is your favorite phrase? Uh, when you describe somebody you don't like, remember, we're on the radio. What, what is your favorite? Dildock? Huh? That's close, huh? That's pretty close. Well, uh, you know... <laughs> Well, everybody has his own favorite little thing. Like some guys will say, you know, a dumb chowder head. You use that phrase. Uh, other people say, oh, look at that. Look at that. Look at that knothead. That's a good one. A turkey is good. Yeah, to refer to a person you do not like as a turkey, a dumb turkey. Well, you know, that comes out of showbiz. Turkey. Uh, turkey refers to, uh, well, a stinkeruna. Uh, you know, a... a uh, <laughs> <laughs> a bomb. <laughs> Turkey is a... Is a, You know why they call them bombs? I'll bet even guys, uh, any of you who are in the theater, don't realize what a, why they call them a bomb. Well, uh, it seems that, uh, that uh, several years back, like before World War II, a couple of occasions occurred when people disliked the show so much that uh, one guy came back to a show after he'd paid $9 for a ticket he was so mad that he came back a couple of nights later, and he, uh, well, let's put it this way, he ignited a uh, smelly incendiary device in the in the theater as uh, as he was uh, <laughs> as preparing to take his seat for the second time. So, well, well, uh, at that point, that began to uh, began to be applied to various shows. This is a, a show that deserved the bomb. This is a show that deserves a, a stink bomb. Eventually, then they started to call the show itself a bomb. Now, uh, are you going to ask me about turkeys? Why turkeys? Why they, uh, well, I, you know why they call a show a turkey? This began to uh, be, be uh, well, actually, it started out on the road. The, the phrase did not develop in New York. But many years ago, when shows would go out on the road, a show would, uh, would play, say, a place like uh, Pitcairn, Kentucky. Okay, well... <laughs> Bucolic people are very straightforward in what they have to say, uh, and uh, straightforward in the sense that uh, that uh, they they they're very descriptive. So if they went to see a show that was really rotten, really ridiculous, it began to be compared to turkeys. Why? Well, did you, did you know that among all of the animal kingdom, especially the kingdom of what could be called the domesticated animals, the turkey is among the total dumbest. A turkey is, the, is, is completely devoid of any sense at all. It's dumb. Not only that, it's extremely pretentious. It's got a lot of feathers all over You know, that big tail and all that jazz? You'd think a thing like this would have a certain amount of dignity. No way. A turkey is pretentious, but totally dumb. Doesn't that describe many a show you've seen? Oh! <laughs> and in addition to that, one other thing must be pointed out about the turkey. Among the domestic uh, fowl, the turkey is, well, at all odds, far and away, the gamiest. If you've ever been around a barnyard that has turkeys growing in it, you know that you can pop your foster grants right off your head with the smell of just two turkeys. You get ten of them together, and buddy, I'm telling you, you don't forget it long. So uh, this is the way they, they began to call it. So somebody would, uh, you know, Caleb would go down to see the show, see? And he'd come back and he'd tell his friend Rupert, he'd say, my God, that was sure some turkey. Referring to the fact it was pretentious, dumb, and smelly. 
Okay, now you know how it starts. Did you know why they call booze booze? Okay, you've come to the right place. Now, why do I know this kind of stuff? <laughs> well, all right, I'll tell you why they call the word booze booze. That in the early 19th century, now I'm not looking in a book of trivia, anything. I'm just telling you this out of general, the great general Ashcan Fund of Shepherd Knowledge. I'm pulling this one out, and it's the truth. That in the early 19th century, just, well, actually at the turn of the 18th and the 19th century, around 1800 up to about 1820, something like that, there was a very famous whiskey manufacturer in the East Coast, I believe Philadelphia, that produced this whiskey, and it was good whiskey, and it was very famous whiskey. However, his name was Edmund Booz, B-O-O-Z, Booz, and it was right on his label. It was Edmund Booz, uh, premium aged-in-the-wood whiskey. <laughs> and there it was, see? So people, it, it became, it was, a, it was a phrase just like today. People would use the word, unfortunately, they use many brand names to describe the generic thing. They'll say Coke, and they mean, you know, or they'll say Band-Aid. Well, these are all brand names. Uh, they're not, they're not uh, generic names. They're brand names. So people began to describe booze. They said, give me a bottle of booze. It meant booze whiskey. And it was so far and away the most popular whiskey of the period that it became synonymous with whiskey itself. Okay? Incidentally, I'll throw another piece of uh, incidental information at you. If you can find a bottle, one of the original bottles, uh, with the booze label on it, in other words, Edmund Booze Prime uh, Aged in the Wood uh, Whiskey or whatever it is he had on it, uh, they're blown, they're, oh, they're glass bottles, on the, and the label is right on the glass. It's part of the glass. These things are upwards of a, maybe 500 to to 1000 bucks each. So, <laughs> so uh, if you're, that's how the word booze came about. Uh, he gave his name. All right, there are other, other, other words like that. Uh, that the guy's name became synonymous with the product itself. You curious what, uh, what some of them are? Well, come on. All right, I'll think of one. I'll give you one right now. Do you know that a very popular appliance in your in your house was named after in its in its slang named after the guy that invented it? who was a famous English inventor who invented this piece of uh, business. All houses have it. If they don't, they have it out in the backyard in a little shed. All <laughs> and his, his, his name was not uh, Thomas Eduardo Toilet. It was another name. But it was, it's a name that is often used to describe this, this particular piece of, uh, of uh, gear. I'll give you a clue. It begins with a C. All right, I'll go no further. I mean, you got to use your head sometime, you dill duck. <laughs> I mean, do I have to tell you everything? Would you please hit the money button? <laughs> Time somebody started something like this, Roger. That's right, Jack. We're here with the press and bond stores, where Bonds has just announced a new concept in a self-help program for the city. All right, the idea is very simple. If Washington can't come through, if Albany is hesitant, then at least we who do business in New York can help those people who help us be the city we are. Believing the New York City municipal employee shouldn't take the brunt of our budget crisis. And he sure shouldn't. Bonds will give each and every city employee a 10% discount to help cut his cost of living right now. Right, and if other retailers 
$1,000 take up this banner, then all of us will benefit by helping those who help us, like the policemen and firemen, the teachers, the sanitation men, the hospital employees. All those municipal employees who work for the biggest and still greatest city in America. So any one of you, if you come to any one of Bond's 21 stores in this area any time this month and show your city employee identification card, you'll get 10% off everything and anything you buy right through the end of July. You help us, so we'll help you, a kind of mutual assistance cooperative. Right, at Bond's we're going to call it Little Mac. <laughs> <laughs> what a phony laugh. I say, you're going to own, but it ain't no way to get out of it. Someday you're going to own generous. Sooner or later, you'll own generous. Rasmus It's time for me to read the copy here. General Tire doesn't claim that its tire experts have all the answers. Oh, no. But they can tell you just about everything you want to know about tires. And that's important with so many new kinds of tires coming out and so many different claims about these tires. You've been on a General Tire guy, and he'll set you straight and tell you what kind of tires to buy. Guess what brand they'll be. General Tire. He's right on there with all the information you need. You'll stay on the road for change. So check your yellow pages for your General Tire headquarters nearest you and sing proudly. Your own generals. Yes, sir. I say, sooner or later, you'll own generals. Well, here's a... A commercial that starts right out here with uh, with a leading statement that is questionable for a starter. It says, almost everybody loves elephants. Well, I suppose everybody... Yeah, I'm not going to put anybody else's hang up on that. So, all right, I'll accept that. But the only time we get to see them is in the circus or the zoo, which is kind of sad. Well, uh, you know... Well, there's a new book out that will take you to the elephant's own turf. It's called Among the Elephants. This is a commercial, by the way. And it's the true adventure story of a young Scottish zoologist and his wife who went to live with and study the elephants. Lane, or Ian there, I guess it's Ian, yeah, it's a misprint there. Ian, Ian rather. Ian and Oria Douglas Hamilton fought the terrors of the jungles of East Africa to try to learn the facts of elephant life. So, Among the Elephants has all kinds of uh, photos, and if you're an elephant freak, uh, you'll enjoy this. It says the reviews were good, too. Um, Harper's calls it riveting. Riveting. Oh, that's an interesting adjective. Mm. <laughs> it's fourteen ninety-five. That's why it's riveting. Published by the Viking Press. Yes, sir. Everything you wanted to know about elephants, and probably a lot more than you probably ever wanted to know about elephants. Among other things, that uh, says here that uh, young elephants don't know what to do with their trunk. I. Uh, that's certainly exciting. That's the kind of stuff that makes reading an adventure every way you go, right? Well, uh, hardly anything knows what to do with anything when it's born. I mean, uh, no, a baby shark grows up and it doesn't know what to, uh, the first five minutes it doesn't know what to do with those great big old fat rotten looking teeth. It's only later that it learns, and it learns good. Sooner or later, you'll own generals. All right, okay, enough of that. We've done all the commercials for tonight. This is WOR in New York. And uh, speaking of commercials, I'm watching this commercial the other night, see? I'm a great student of commercials. I, To me, I think uh, the commercial is the true literature of our time. Uh, have you noticed that they're always walking around? Have you noticed that, uh, that, uh, that there's always an editorial... Every couple of months in the, the, the more serious uh, periodicals, like What's Happened to American Playwrights? Or uh, What's Happened to the American Novel? Or Why Has the Short Story Disappeared? Or uh, 
How come they're writing such rotten poetry these days? Well, all these boil down to one thing. Uh, the old forms are slowly disappearing. Uh, and and uh, you'll even read occasionally there'll be a piece that says, uh, how come they're turning out such rotten movies? Well, movies are also disappearing. Not as a commercial entity, but as an art form. Uh, to compare, say, uh, War and Peace, or uh, let's say to compare, uh, we'll just take for argument's sake, uh, Alexander Nevsky with Deep Throat, is immediately to realize <laughs> that, the, that the art form has taken several giant steps down way towards the bottom of the humus heap of art. Now, uh, that's kind of nice, isn't it? That little phrase there, humus heap, you like that? That's spelled with an H, friends. You can look it up there. It's good. Good word. You can apply that even to your office. What a humus heap that is. However, uh, <laughs> or is that a compost heap? You prefer that? <laughs> However, uh, nevertheless, uh, when all is said and done, uh, you never see an editorial that comes out and says, what's happened to the great commercials they used to have? Well, because we still have them. In other words, the commercial is really ringing all four bells of artistic and art and uh, poetic triumph. Oh, some of the great commercials. Let me tell you, there's, there's a commercial on uh, currently uh, for a, a very private feminine product that in 58 seconds does more uh, for the whole field of aesthetics than Emily Dickinson did writing 200 years straight. I mean, just majestic sunsets, birds flying. It's tremendous. Uh, <laughs> and if you see it in color, oh, uh, I mean, the color, the color is a kaleidoscopic tour through all the various sensory levels of the optic nerve. Oh, how's that for a nice uh, review there? But it'll never get reviewed by the New York Times, you see, because the New York Times has not yet gotten hit to the fact, as many of the periodicals haven't, that our art forms just are not, are not really... Uh, uh, polite yet. Well, just like, for example, if you were a critic, now I'll just throw it out here. If you were a critic and you were writing about, let's say, American art in 19, uh, we'll just argue, just, just take a date, 1947, you would not write about one of the great American artists of that period. It's only now that Nat Hentoff writes about him. All right, Hank Williams. Now, Hank Williams is today a legend. But if you were a critic writing for the Times in 1947, and you and this was at the very peak of his career, you suggested you were going to do this great piece on Hank Williams, you'd get thrown down all four flights of steps, <laughs> all the way down into 43rd Street. They wouldn't talk to you twice. You're Hank Williams. Ah, hell, Billy, why are you? Oh. Uh, but now, of course, you're writing learned articles about uh, the legend of Hank Williams. Uh, the, uh, the... Uh, uh, what Hank Williams left behind us, the legacy of Hank Williams. Now, of course, it's popular. And I would say that by the year 1995, there will be people who will be... By, by that time, see, the commercial will have peaked out and will have gone into its Byzantine and ultimately its Rococo and then eventually to its decadent stages, which is what the movies did. <laughs> you, could, you could really parallel it with the, with the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. See, the early days of the movie... Uh, this was a form that nobody took seriously. Uh, that's why so many great uh, stage performers just refused to appear in the movies in the early days. They just, what do you, <laughs> this was the thing you paid a nickel for, and you sat in the garage and watched. 
You're not going to, you know, if you were some elegant stage actor, you're not going to go down there and, and uh, make a ridiculous little flickery picture which guys are going to watch while somebody played the piano and, and everybody sat and ate taffy apples. Are you kidding? No way. So they, uh, in the early days, the art form had a curious uh, basic raw folk vitality to it. Uh, and, and, and all the performers that went into it, by the way, were almost invariably uh, non-successful in other fields. It was a last resort, <laughs> frankly. Charlie Chaplin's classic example. Uh, last resorts, Phil. Uh, this was also true of uh, guys like Laurel and Hardy. And, the, you know, the, the people we consider great today uh, were only doing this because they, they didn't make it on the uh, Orpheum circuit. Or they weren't they weren't called to be in the in the great Ziegfeld Follies or whatever it was that was going on on the Broadway stage. So they went out and they did these little things, you know, uh, and so th their stuff had a certain raw vitality. Well, then uh, because they were only doing it for the Yahoos that ate the taffy apple, <laughs> they weren't, weren't no critic wrote about it. You know, who oh, oh, critic? Are you kidding? So uh, they just did it. Well, then uh, as the time went on and the movies got to be bigger and bigger with the walking around public. Uh, the uh, the critic began to get part of the scene back around the uh, middle and uh, late 20s until finally the critic hit his peak in the late 1930s with very learned critics like James Adji writing very involved uh, metaphysical uh, reviews that were almost unintelligible to even the people who made the movie. Uh, there's a famous line of, of a famous movie maker when confronted with a James Adji movie a critic of his own criticism of his own movie. See, uh, they 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 came rushing into him with this review, and he had spent like eight months making this movie, this mogul. See, he's a big mogul with a cigar, the whole work. See, so uh, he directed, wrote, it, produced it, hired the actors, auditioned the chicks, you know, the whole bit. See, and he made it. So in came in came the review. See, and James Ozzy wrote this very flowery, involved review. Uh, it made you know the kind of stuff that makes Pauline Kael read like the. Uh, uh, the spring and summer edition of the Sears Robot Catalog, you know, that kind of stuff. He's very involved, metaphysical, uh, full with uh, inner meanings, leap motifs, and all this sort of thing. And the guy sit down, he, they brought it in to him. He says, uh, he says, Sam, look at this review we just got. And Sam looks at it, he says, and uh, he was the type of guy whose lips moved when he read the, uh, when he read the, uh, uh, the, the Daily Mirror, uh, Headlines. He had trouble getting beyond the headlines, and he's he's looking at this thing. And finally, he puts it down. He says, "He says, hey, 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 come here." And at that point, his his assistant came over, and he he throws it across the, the, the desk at him. He says, "What the hell language is that?" He thought it was in a foreign language. <laughs> well, it was to Sam. So. <laughs> the point being here that, that uh, at that point movies became very self-conscious until today now uh, movies are uh, unbelievably self-conscious where the review is far more important than the movie itself and this is why you're often confused you read this great long tremendous review in the New Yorker or something or in one of the magazines and then you go to see the movie and it's just a little unpretentious little nothing turkey and uh, you figure what the hell was all the flap about well, the flap was about the review, buddy, not about the movie. So this is, uh, this is what they call the period of decadence, see, where uh, we're in the period now in the arts in America and in the world that theology went through. There was a period in theological uh, development where uh, back in the, 
in uh, the the great esoteric period of uh, of let's say uh, uh, monkly studies and uh, theological uh, esoterica when the churches ceased to have anything to do with the people's lives and uh, spent endless centuries debating the number of angels and etc on the head of the pin and uh, this is you know we're at that stage now all the while these this this great vibrant art form is is going full blast <laughs> and, uh, and uh, it's in the stage that uh, say Charlie Chaplin was in at the days when uh, nobody was writing about him and eventually there will be there will be halls of fame where people will talk about the guy that turned out this this fantastic uh, oh yes they, they, they will discuss the concept oh that's beautiful art that's beautiful that that pace on that's just great aren't you have an ecclesiastical look Art just walked in with his new his new beard and uh, there's a new uh, feeling I think in the control room of, refer of, of reference we're going to have from here on in we're going to expect you to bring in some scrolls at the very least <laughs> yeah quit wearing them shirts we want a tunic come on and look at those uh, those Sears Roebuck shoes you got. You're going to have to start wearing those Roman sandals, you know, like Victor Mature wore, you know, that laced up over the calves. But uh, nevertheless, uh, uh, <laughs> I predict the day very shortly uh, when when some some you know it'll have to be in a in a magazine that's official. See, uh, uh, the fact that I'm talking about this and the fact that other people are talking about commercials is not enough. Some learned type, or at least a guy that is accepted uh, as learned. Uh, will discover the commercial as the major art form. And then they'll discuss the uh, the heart-shaped meatloaf syndrome will be discussed at great length, the symbolism of this. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, the, the, uh, the symbolism of brand X will be discussed at tremendous length. And then, of course, there will be the, uh, the cinema verite type commercial uh, will, be, will be analyzed. Uh, and then all up and down the line, this will become a whole school of study. So uh, Shepard is right there. See, I'm studying these things right now. And uh, the other day, I'm, I'm, uh, I watched this commercial scene. I says, gee, you know, because uh, many of these commercials touch upon areas of your life that plays never touch on. No way. I have not yet once seen a play discuss uh, getting your drain working. Not once. And yet this is a plague <laughs> that many a person, you have this great, fantastic, expensive apartment, and all of a sudden the sink is stopped up, and all the stuff that's coming out of you wouldn't believe would come out of such an expensive apartment. But it comes right out and all over the new linoleum, and uh, you're right there with the people again. Oh, you want to know what happened on uh, Staten Island? You thought I forgot it, huh? Well, the other day, the Staten Island Ferry's going along, doing its thing when this lady is sitting there on one of the benches, when all of a sudden out from under the bench came 12,942 cockroaches in a battle line. And she leaped up, screamed, and uh, within five minutes, the entire boat is filled with people running around stomping cockroaches. And they knew one thing, according to the piece. For every cockroach they got, there were 100 at least waiting in reserve. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> it's like trying to have a war with the Chinese... <laughs> There's just no way. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> but uh, so you know you 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 have to report these little things. That's the way it goes. And I, you know, you will not see that in the commercial. Uh, you know, the, the 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 day the cockroach scourge hit the Staten Island ferry, 
and it was named after a famous World War II general on top of that. So uh, th that is the boat. So uh, I, I watched this commercial the other night, and I thought to myself, oh, yeah, wow. And it hit me. That's right. A thing happened to me once which uh, is so masculine, so completely masculine, that, uh, that it, uh, I, I almost hesitate to tell this today because, you know, uh, stories that deal with being one sex or the other are often resented by the other sex. Well, not so much. I, I, I've never seen men resent hearing stories about women, but it's the other way. <laughs> Have you noticed that? So uh, that's, that's called uh, one-way liberation. So uh, nevertheless, well, most things today are one way when all is said and done. Uh, but... Uh, yeah, most people want free speech. It's the other guy they want shut up. Keeps making these dumb statements, you know. And uh, so uh, it's it's a, it's, a, it's really a problem. Uh, man is always fighting his fellow man and himself too. So I'm sitting there watching a commercial, and all of a sudden they hit me. I'll never forget this day. I, I, I'm I'm 14. It was I know specifically I was 14. Why I know? Well, it doesn't matter. I was 14, and it was summer. Now. Uh, well, I'll tell you how I know it was 14. I had just gotten a work permit. They had a special thing in the state where you could get a special work permit if you were 14 only to work at jobs that kids could work at. It wasn't a general work permit. It was like if you could get a job, say, uh, uh, helping a guy uh, uh, pick tomatoes or something. You had to have a work permit, see. So I got this work permit. That, that's how It was that summer. I had everything but a job. I had the work permit, but I didn't do anything. <laughs> so anyway, I, I, this on this particular day, it was like a, a day of all days, and uh, I'd been out all day playing ball. At, in my 14th year, I was really into ball playing. I mean, really into ball playing. I mean, it was not this uh, once a week going out and playing the little league. That's not playing ball. Uh, that's an offshoot of Cub Scouts has nothing whatsoever to do with ball playing. I'm sorry, you guys. <laughs> Any of you do. No, no, no. The day that I hear about a little league team that gets up at 6 o'clock in the morning and practices until dark every day of the week, then you're playing ball. But this business of going down once a week and uh, playing against another little league team, that's not playing ball. That's an offshoot of the, the patrol boy picnic syndrome. You know, you're not ball playing. You're just, you know, it's getting the kids together on once a week where they run around and eat hot dogs. But uh, nevertheless, I was really into ball playing. We even built our own ballpark. Yeah, well, there was a, a, a field there. It was, a, it was a, an empty field. And, you know, a, a big old, really a vacant lot, a big vacant lot. And we had cleared it and worked like beavers for, uh, oh, roughly uh, three weeks, clearing it, cutting all the weeds down, and we made a ballpark. We just got the ball diamond done, and we're playing like the second or third day on this ball diamond when 8,400 bulldozers arrived and the shopping center went up, okay? So <laughs> forget the ball diamond. Were we bugged? Well, anyway, I was reading at the baseball and playing ball at all times. And, of course, when you play ball 6 hours, 10 hours, 12 hours, 15 hours a day, 7 days a week, you wind up with... Uh, with your fingers are all jammed and and, uh, and there were times when six out of ten of my fingernails were torn off. Uh, yeah, and you wind up you wind up with uh, with slide burns in very many many sensitive parts of your body. 
uh, parts which we can't even discuss in spite of liberated radio. I had some slide burns you wouldn't believe. And, uh, <laughs> well, all right, so here it was. It was one of those days, you know, and, I, and I'd come home after a hard day of, of uh, knocking out flies and running into the weeds after fly balls and picking stickers off of my feet and, and uh, doing a whole thing, and my hands were jammed all up and, and uh, hot, sweaty, satisfying day and uh, supper time. And I, I sit there going to supper, and the usual routine. My mother says, "Why do I just once? Why don't you wash up before sitting down?" So all right, all right. So I get up and I go in, and I pour the water on me, and I come back in. I sit down. The kid brother's sitting there, and the old man is saying nothing. See, he's got the paper. He's looking at the paper. He's waiting for supper to be served. And uh, we were going through a period in our house where uh, the, the my old man had decided it's summertime, so we ought to have summertime meals which meant that we had the salmon salad, uh, you know, with onions and stuff. We always had salmon salad. <laughs> and so we got the salmon. So he's sitting there, and all of a sudden he, he puts his paper down. He looks over at me, and he says, I got a present for you. I have a present for you. I said, a present? That's a very unusual thing for the old man to say at supper time. And he doesn't want to add or anything. He just, you know, he says, I got a present for you. And instantly, my kid brother looks up, and he's bugged. And he, you know, what do you mean, present for him? And the old man says, all right. He says, I have this present. So he says, would you go in to the dining room and take out of the right coat pocket of my coat, which is hanging over one of the dining room chairs, you reach into the pocket and bring the package that you will find in the pocket to me. Okay. So I go into the next room, and there's the old man's suit coat. You know, he came home from the office. He put the coat over the over the chair. So I, I look through the coat, and sure enough, there's this package, and it's wrapped in green official-looking paper, not uh, gift paper. You know, just like uh, if you get something from a hardware store or something, it's nicely wrapped, little uh, cellophane tape on it. And it's a small package. It's about the size of, uh, oh, if you could, it, well, about the size of a wristwatch box. Well, there was an immediate thrill in my gut, see, because I had a, I was going through a wristwatch end too, at that time. I lived, I had this wristwatch, see. And I thought, gee, you know, it's a wristwatch, because it looked just like that kind of package, and it was about that heavy. So I bring it in, and I said, here. He says, okay. He said, now, I want you to open it. I said, you know, here? He says, yeah, open it. So I very carefully opened the package. And, you know, I said, gee, Dad, wow, this is great. Wow, it's not even my birthday. Gee, wow. And he says, no, no, open the package. My mother had no idea. She's looking kind of, you know, a little quizzical about it, and the kid brother's already getting ready to yell. You know, he wants one. So I open the package, and here in the package is a box. Whatever this is, it's nicely encased in a box. And the box was black pebble. It was a cardboard box with black pebble imitation leather on it. And I says, wow, you know, it looked like a watch. Wow. <laughs> I was already saying, wow, and look at it, it's got a great band. At that point, I open it up. Bum, ba-dum, bum. It is a Gillette razor. <laughs> it's a Gillette razor. You know the kind, it's, it's chrome, and you, you turn the handle, the knob on the end, and the two halves go up, 
And inside of it is a package of Gillette Blue Blades with it, you know, stuck in this little box. And it was a package of Blue Blades and a razor blade. You know, the razor, whole thing there. And I said, what's a razor? Like, uh, what the hell are you give me this for? The old man says, now, he turns to my mother, he says, how long will it be before supper? She says, oh, 15 minutes, I got the uh, rolls in the oven. She always made these Parker House rolls that came, you know, with the mix. She says, 15 minutes, we'll have the rolls. He says, okay. He says, we have just time. Follow me. So he gets up and he walks into the john. And I bring the razor with me. He says, bring the razor. So I walk in. And he says, now, I'm going to show you how to shave. And you... I says, but Dad. He says, no buts about it. He says, have you looked at yourself lately? Well, you know, kids, when they're 14, unless they're a certain foppish type, they don't spend their time looking in the mirror. They spend their time going after ground balls, you know. So I, I, I had a bare acquaintance with a mirror. The only time I ever used the mirror was when uh, I had to do some particularly mean squeezing on my face <laughs> at that time, you know. So I said, what do you mean? He says, look at, look, at you, look at yourself in the mirror. And I look in the mirror. He says, look at that. He says, you look furry. And here it was. I had this faint fur all over me. See? <laughs> and it was, he says, we are going to shave that off. I said, shave it off. He said, yes. Well, now, as a kid, you know, I had gone through that phase that all kids go through when they're really little, like they're about six or seven, where they love to watch their father shave. You know, the old, uh, you know, the, the old man, with the, he'd go in there and he'd shave, man, he'd, and he had this razor, and he'd whip it off. And, and, uh, and it, was, it was a whole thing, you see. At the time, I was about six or seven, but up to this point now, for years, I had never watched the old man. So that's the thing my father did. He shaved. Every morning, he'd shave. He'd be in the john, that was it. He was shaving. Uh, you know, it's just sort of part of life. So he says, we're not going to shave. He says, no, here's what you do. First of all, okay. I said, what, what do you mean? He said, well, I'm going to show you. He said, now you hear, you put hot water in the sink. You fill up as hot as you can stand. All right, shh. So in goes the hot water. He says, now give me the, give me the wash rag. You're always quite there. You just take it now and you soak it in hot water and you wash your face with hot water, with soap. He says, now I know that's going to be difficult for you to accept. But you wash your face with hot water and soap. Is that part of shaving? Well, right then I began to have a, a lifelong, profound hatred of shaving, which has not left me, because this is absolutely anti-second baseman to start washing your face with hot water and soap. <laughs> so I take this thing, and, and uh, we always used. My mother, of course, was the one that bought all the stuff in the house. So we always used palm olive. My mother was a palm. She believed in palm olive the way other people believe in Christian Science. So much. She had this feeling, if you use palm olive, you'll live longer. So uh, I take the soap scene, I rub it on my face. He says, no, no. He says, you got to get work up a lather with it. So I rub like Kelsey, and now the soap is all over, and boy, stuff was coming off of me that had been on there since I was nine, you know. Finally, I'm all washed. And he says, no. He says, take the rag, take the washcloth there. And he says, put some more hot water, put it on, put it on your face now. So I put it on. He says, okay, now. He says, uh, take this. He's not here. Now, you've got to put the shaving cream on your face, right? So he, he used this, uh, he had Williams shaving cream. He always used this Williams kind that came in a tube. Yes, it came in a tube. That's the kind he used. They still make it, by the way, so it's not out of the ancient past, yes. 
And so I, I take this stuff and, and he, I squeeze it out, see? And he says, all right, now take that and rub it on your face, see? And it makes a lather, like. So sure enough, I rub it on, see, all over my face. That's a curious burning feeling. <laughs> you know, it doesn't feel like soap. You know that feeling? So I rub it all over, see? He says, now, all right, now. He says, now we're ready to start. He says, take your razor now and put in a blade. He says, now, you don't know how to put the blade in? So he shows me how the blade, you put the thumb down in that slot, you know, and you push out the blade, and he takes the blade out, and it, uh, he puts it in this thing, and he tightens it up. He says, now, be sure you have a tightness. He says, if you know it, you're going to cut your Adam's apple right off. So he tightens it properly. So he says, now, you dip your razor in the hot water. <laughs> so I put the razor in. So he, he says, now, here's what you do now. He says, now... There's all kinds of theories. He says, you'll get to the point where you know how you shave your own beard. Your beard is going to be different from mine. I thought to myself, having a beard. See? He says, your beard is going to be different from mine. So he says, now, all right, now, here's the way I start. He says, I start with the neck. See, I go up like that first. He says, now, some guys start up around the sideburns and go down. He says, I start this way. He says, now, uh, you can try it my way. He says, but uh, figure out your own way later. So he says, now, here, hold the razor. What, what a hand is, is, is uh, right for you? Well, now I, I'm I'm ambidextrous. I really am. I uh, I do some things left-handed. I do other things right-handed. For example, I play tennis left-handed. I bat right-handed. Figure that one out. I can write either hand. So he says, which does it feel right? Well, I always use a screwdriver with my left hand. So he says, all right, take your left hand. All right, put it in your left hand. So I take it in my left hand. So he says, now try it now. Start right at the bottom there by your Adam's apple. And take one. He says, and don't take long strokes, short little strokes. See? So I go, like that, see? And I, he says, well, you're doing good. Now just keep, don't don't press. Just uh, He says, the razor will do it, do it itself. Now, you know, that razor is built for this. And in the meantime, my kid brother has arrived. And he is standing in the door, and he's starting to whine, because he wants to do it, too. <laughs> well, <laughs> he had a long way to go before he was going to make the beard scene, see? So the old man says, now, shut up. Don't yell in the bathroom while he's shaving. He's going to cut himself. Okay, so I'm going like that, and the old man is watching. Well, I carefully shaved my neck. There were, you know, there was nothing on there to shave, but I did it. I carefully shaved my neck, and so I start up at the top, left-hand side, right around the top of the sideburns, and I start shaving down. Well, I got halfway down just before I hit my chin when I experienced the first one of a lifelong number of times that this is going to happen. The old man says, it's fine, it's normal. He says, you're going to do that all your life. I had this hickey. <laughs> well, anybody who shaves all the time knows that there is nothing that bleeds like a nicked hickey. It will bleed sometimes eight, nine, ten years. <laughs> Do you agree with me on that, friends? And they sometimes, and other times they won't. But it, it, anyway, this was a bleeder. See, so he's all right. All right, now he's okay. Now I'm sure you what you do about that. He says, now wait a minute. He says, okay, now he takes. He takes the washcloth, puts some cold water, and he dabs it on that real quick, see? And he has a thing called a septic pencil. You ever use one of those? He reaches up. Now, this is one of those mysterious things my father always had in the medicine cabinet. He says, all right, here, take this now. It's just a little white pencil. And I put it on the cut. Ah! You know, it burns like hell. Stops the bleeding instantly. He says, okay. Well, about, it seemed like two and a half hours later, I have completed my shave. And now he says, okay. He says, now take warm water and run it over your face. So I run the warm water, see? And then I put the cold water on. And he says, now, here, here's what you do. Now you finish it all off here. And my old man believed in aqua velva. 
the way my mother believed in Tom Holland. He was an aqua velva man uh, for, from the word go. You know, he'd have loved those commercials, you know. It's an aqua velva man, you know. It makes a man feel like a man. It's <laughs> he gets his aqua velva, you know, this green stuff. Very green, see. And it smells, I'll tell you, it smells like a, uh, like a Lexington, Kentucky house of ill fame on Saturday night. I mean, you know, the stuff is very strong, see? So he says, okay, now shake it in your hands. He shakes it, says, rub it together now, and right on your face. Ah, boy, did it burn. Oh, wow. Woo you know, you, any man knows the efficacy of that uh, that commercial. So he says, now, don't you feel better? And I walked out of the John 10 feet tall. That's right. A great milestone had been passed. <laughs> now, every man listening to me has gone through that in one way or another. He had to. The first shave. Now, do you agree that this is a masculine experience? It has nothing to do with, with suppressing women. Just a fact. And so, from that minute on, see, I, 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 on the back, we had this little glass shelf, see. It was just under the medicine cabinet where my old man kept his razor, see. I'd keep my razor there. And I'll never forget, it was six weeks later before I needed my next shave. <laughs> oh, well, I needed that. I needed that. Uh, this is WOR New York. Stay tuned for In Conversation.